You may be seated. And if you would, please meet me in Luke chapter 23. If you have a Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the beginning of the New Testament. If you get to John, go back to the left, or you can just open up your worship book there, and we have the text printed for you today. Luke chapter 23, uh, or excuse me, 24 rather, 1 through 12 will be our primary text uh, today. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders or pastors here at Church in the Square. It's grateful. I'm grateful to be able to open up God's Word with you today. And today, uh, over two billion people identify as Christians, which is about a third of the global population, which is striking because in 8350, after Emperor Constantine essentially recognized Christianity as the prevailing religion of the Greco-Roman world, about 30 million people claim to follow Jesus, which is even more striking when we realize that three centuries earlier, there were about 600 Christians. How do we make sense of this reality? How do we make sense of this expansive and explosive growth of an unforeseen story of this Jewish rabbi who claimed to be God and rose from the dead? I think that's it. In a word, we make sense of it through resurrection. In other words, God did something that changed everything. God did something that changed everything. Today, many of us relegate the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inspiring story, an inspiring spiritual story, but not a real one. God didn't really do something, but the story of the resurrection to many of us is a powerful idea which leads us to take moral action, perhaps like loving our neighbors better or living with a kind of hope of a future that can be better than today. Others of us, perhaps you grew up in the church, grew up in faith, grew up around religion, and the story of the resurrection was definitely a moment in history, but it has very little to do with your life today. It gives you hope for heaven, but not clarity about what is true and beautiful and lovely today. However, scholar N.T. Wright explains that the best way to understand the reality and the growth of the early church that we've just summarized was that, and I quote, something had happened. Something which was not at all what they expected or hoped for. Something around which they reconstructed their lives. Right, says the best explanation for the birth of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. That it actually happened is the only way to make sense of it. That God really did something. But that's not all. That's not the full story. Historian Larry Hurtado gives us more to consider. He says that the growth of Christianity in the first three centuries, the most crucial period, was largely by a combination of the power of persuasion, whether in preaching, intellectual argument, miracles, exhibiting the power in Jesus' name, and simply the moral suasion, the way that people lived, of Christian behavior, including martyrdom. See, followers of Jesus were changed. They'd received immediate hope and power and security from the resurrection that caused them to live differently. They lived with intellectual and spiritual and moral conviction and integrity in response to the resurrection. See, God did something that changed everything, and that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the reality that 2,000 years ago, God actually did something, and how that something doesn't simply give us access to an ethereal future, but rather What God did changes me and it changes you. It transforms us as a community on the spot by grace through faith. Or to put it another way, I want to talk with you about how we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened and why it's really hopeful. 
that God did something and that changed everything. As always, we need to pray and ask for God's help if we're to understand what he would like to say to us today. So let's pray and do just that. Father, left to yourselves, we may have some semblance of understanding and meaning of what your word communicates and reveals about what is true and what is beautiful. But it is only if you speak to us, only if your spirit illuminates the scriptures and shines brightly through this text, will we understand the meaning behind the meaning, the kind of power and understanding that transforms us from the inward out. That's not something we can muster up the courage or ability to do. It's something that requires the power of the resurrection. And so would you resurrect our hearts, give us clarity in our thinking that we would live differently as a result. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, first, I'd like to go to school a little bit, and then I'd like to celebrate what we learn from that education. Luke's account of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection was published about 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death, and about 40% of what Luke has to say, he stole, I think with permission, from Mark, from Mark's biography, which was written about 10 or 15 years earlier. But within a few months of Jesus' death, we have a good indication through historical record that a mantra was developed in the early church and circulated throughout the earliest Christians that went something like this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This mantra, of course, if you are familiar with that language or those words, is quoted by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the early church in Corinth just a couple of decades after Jesus' death. Paul is establishing an accepted and meaningful understanding of the gospel or the good news that Jesus lived perfectly, that he died sacrificially, that he was buried literally, that he rose victoriously, and that he ascended with all authority in his right hand. In other words, God through Jesus actually did something. In fact, Paul says that Jesus appeared. And most of what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 15 is dedicated to the appearance of Jesus. Jesus proved to people he rose from the dead. He visited Cephas or Peter. He visited the 12, that is his first disciples. And then he appeared to over 500 people. And then did you notice Paul says most of them are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're still alive. Don't just take my word for it. Don't take this mantra that's circulating all over the early church for it. Go talk to them. They'll tell you. God did something. God really did something. And this is what sets apart the Christian story. See, many religions and spiritual communities have perspectives and values and doctrines and beliefs and rhythms and routines that we're supposed to adopt and adapt to our lives. But following Jesus is not primarily about adopting and adapting a particular way of seeing the world. It's not about following or even believing a set of moral values and practices. Christianity is based upon nothing that we do. It is not about what we do at all, but rather upon the reality that God did something. That God did something. See, much of, many of us spend most of our lives trying to do all of the right things to get God's attention for his blessing now and forever. And what the scriptures teach us over and over again, this good news is too good for you to achieve on your own merits. 
but it is given to you by grace because God did something. However, what's really shocking if you follow the resurrection story and almost any accounts of it in the Gospels, what's shocking to discover when we open up especially Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection is that no one expected God to do anything. Luke opens up his story of what happened on that Sunday morning after Jesus' death this way. Look at Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus while they were perplexed about this. It's been two days since Jesus was executed on a Roman cross between two common thieves or criminals. And notice the women that that Luke is telling us about. They, They are headed to Jesus' tomb early Sunday morning. And they are coming, notice, with spices in their hands. Now, why do they have spices? Well, these women actually had watched Jesus die. They had watched Jesus' body be laid in a tomb. They were devoted and loving followers of Jesus who watched their Lord suffer, die, and then went with him all the way to where he was laid to rest. So like any of us, they are coming to a tomb with all of that experience and all of that understanding, expecting to find death. They have spices to anoint the body, to curb the stench, but they don't. They don't find a body. When they, what they find instead is a stone rolled away and no body. And that's why they, that Luke says they were perplexed. Perplexed is a word that meaning they were, they were lost. And they were even experiencing fear, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Why? Because dead things stay dead. And apparently something different is happening today. In their perplexity, two angelic figures show up to bring clarity. Look at verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all those things to the eleven and to all the rest. So while they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on, and we can understand their perplexity, you and I would have probably been experiencing the very same thing. Two angels or men in dazzling apparel tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead. And specifically, what do they say? They tell them to remember. Remember that Jesus said he was going to do something. Luke tells us that they needed to remember. And then they race and tell their friends. However, they are about to face an ancient um, and regretfully prevalent issue that we still face today, that men don't believe women. This is true in the text and true regretfully in many of your experiences. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women, and with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So let's not miss this. The women were perplexed. The apostles didn't believe them. The great apostle Peter runs to go see for himself, and he's still marveling or astonished. Why? Because God did something. God did something no one expected. God did something no one could conceive. God did something that no one else could do. God did something that nobody saw coming. 
See, many stories, many stories of how to make sense of the resurrection have to do with the disciples, have to do with Jesus' followers stealing the body or deceiving people. But the earliest accounts of what took place is like nobody knows what in the world is going on. This is not what anybody expected. The Christian story is not primarily then about morals, my sisters and brothers. It's not about doctrine. It's not about how you behave or what you believe or what you even practice. Christianity is not based upon the things we do. Christianity is about the reality that around AD 30, God did something. And there are two different kinds of pathways in the world. We either build our lives on what God did or we build our lives on what we do. And the Christian story is that God really did something. The most logical way to understand the explosive and expansive growth of the Christian people, of the Christian church, is that God really did something in real space, in real time, that really happened. See, the most reasonable way to reconcile a missing Jewish body is that God did something. The most likely explanation for the perplexity and disbelief and marveling of Jesus' first followers is that God actually did something. Church, the resurrection really happened. Okay, so the resurrection really happened, but why does it matter? We've been to school. Let's understand why it ought to bring us celebration. Why is the resurrection really hopeful? Well, let's reconsider what the two men in dazzling apparel, don't you love that detail? Some of you are in dazzling apparel today and you look wonderful. Look at verse 6 again. Here's what they say. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. They tell the women to what? Remember. They, they want them to remember that Jesus told them exactly what God was going to do. Now, if Jesus told them what God was going to do, why is everyone so surprised? This is a fair question to come to the, out of this text with, right? Over and over again, he tells them three times, in fact. Why is everyone so surprised? Why wouldn't this even conflict with the evidence that no one was working a plan and nobody was making this happen or waiting for this to happen? If Jesus told them something this incredible, how could they possibly have forgotten it? Well, let's just be real. Humans are hilarious. I, I know, I face this all the time. Have you ever noticed how often you remember minute details that do not matter to your life at all? Like all of the details of that Netflix show that everybody else thinks is garbage, and you're like, no, let me tell you beginning to end everything you need to know about it. We remember the trivial details of our life, but isn't it also true we forget the most fundamental things? In fact, ironically, the more important something is, I think the more we forget it. Therefore, the more often we need to remember. See, in marriage, aren't we prone to forget the deep and abiding love of our beloved? Isn't it true in parenting that we often have to remind our children, I am your mom, I am your dad, I'm actually doing this because I love you, not because I'm trying to destroy you. In depression, isn't it true that we forget some of the most basic realities of our humanity, of who we are? See, it's not that we forget facts. It's not that we don't have these details in mind. Rather, we fail to be grounded and centered on particular and prevailing truths. I never would say that my wife doesn't love me, but there are behaviors and ways that I speak to her that act as if something else is true. 
We forget. And one of the primary themes of the Old Testament is actually remembering. God's people are instructed countless times to remember some of the most basic and fundamental stories and aspects of their faith. In fact, whenever something big happens, the Lord instructs his people, build a monument, make a worship ceremony so that every time you pass by, you remember. Now, why would they remember some of these amazing stories of what happens in the Old Testament? Because we're humans and we are forgetful. We are a forgetful bunch of creation. Not only so, but God promises to remember his promises. It's not surprising then that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, what does he say? Do this in what? Remembrance of me. It's like he's saying, you're going to forget that I died and why I died. So every time you get together, have a meal so y'all don't forget. Get together, break bread, drink some juice, fruit of the vine, have some wine. If you're not down with wine, get some grape juice. Even if you got to put a little plastic thing over it and it takes you five minutes to open up, make sure you have this meal and remember what I did. You're going to forget. You would think there's no way we would possibly forget this. It's like Peter. There's no way I'll ever deny you, Lord. There's no way I'll ever do it. And what does Peter do? Denies him three times, just like he said. So let's be very careful we get dressed up on resurrection, just go, we're never going to forget this. This is amazing. That song was on point. I loved everything about it. The meal was fire. Every, we'll never, ever forget. Yes, you will, and yes, I will. So remember, church. These women had not forgotten that Jesus talked about death, talked about going to Jerusalem and rising from the dead. He told them three times. Rather, they had a trouble understanding his death and resurrection. Therefore, they didn't find hope in his words. See, they didn't center their lives on what he said. It went in one ear and out the other. They didn't live in light of this truth. They didn't, they didn't build their lives around what Jesus had told them he was about to do. See, isn't that our problem today? We either don't believe that God really did something, and so we try our whole lives to do everything on our own. We don't remember. Or we believe that God did something, but it bears no impact on our daily life, as if between now and heaven, it's all about what we do, our foolish and fleeting religious practices and idols. We don't remember. We don't live in light of this truth. We don't act like it's true. We don't build our lives on this hope. Are you with me? We may know the facts, but we don't remember. So in the middle of marriage conflict, we better remember when we're raising up our children, we better remember. When we're learning to be a good neighbor, we better remember. When we're in group together, in life together, we need to remember. When we are receiving the Lord's correction, we need to remember. When we don't like what the Lord is up to and it feels like he's distant and silent, what do we do? We need to remember. In fact, I don't think it's too pointed to say that to be a Christian is to remember. The mantra circulating the early months of the church makes the claim that Jesus' death and resurrection actually had meaning. It didn't just happen, it had meaning. God really did something, but it also really meant something. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. What, what does Paul tell us? What's that mantra tell us? According to the scriptures. That it's according to a plan. It's according to purpose. See, before quoting that mantra circulating the early months of the church, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would, what? Remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach, unless you believed in vain. What does he say? Remember. 
I would have you remember. Paul wants his readers to remember. He wants us to remember that we have received something. He wants us to remember that we can stand in something. He wants us to remember that we've been saved from and for something. He wants us to remember that we can hold fast in the middle of the shifting sands of this day. Am I preaching to you yet that you have something to hold on to in the middle of this? When everything else seems like slippery slopes and sinking sand, you have a Savior in whom you can stand. I wonder if you believe that today. He says you can remember something to believe in. He wants you to remember. God did something that changed everything. The gospel, the resurrection is really hopeful because it really matters. See, full and forever life is received by grace. It's not earned. And so we remember today that we are loved in the resurrection. It's a truth, Paul says, on which we stand and can build our lives on a sure foundation. We remember today that we are secure in the resurrection. It's salvation from sin and from shame and from death and from brokenness. We remember today that we are forgiven in the resurrection. It's a security in the midst of shifting morals and values and powers and principalities and idols of this cultural moment. We remember today that we have peace in the resurrection. It's a vision of the future which sees beyond the temporal and unsatisfying thrills of this life. We remember today we have a hope in the resurrection that actually satisfies your soul. Today is a day we are called to remember. That resurrection changes everything. So can you even imagine? What if in the coming years, someone were to consider the growth of your life? Not just the growth of the church, but the growth of your life. What if our neighbors consider the growth and love and hopefulness of our church family? What if they didn't think about the practices and doctrines and services and things that we did first, but rather what if they looked for love Security, peace, hope. See, in the days and months and years ahead, may there be no other way to explain at all what they see than something actually happened. God really did something, and that something changed everything. And these are not just facts to keep top of mind, but this is a reality on which we build our lives. So may we be a people who remember. Heavenly Father, We are so prone to forget, and you are so gracious to repeat yourself, and so we say thank you. Thank you that on Resurrection Sunday, there is not new news that we need to figure out now how to add that to the rest of the story. It's the repetition of good and ancient news that you are a God who remembers his people. And so may we be a people who remembers our Lord, who he is, what he has actually done, and how that actually changes us. Help us to build our lives on that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.